Welcome to the London Welsh Rugby Club podcast. This is episode 65. Well, that was some rest. The season at the club was very busy and I really didn't get time to commit to doing this on a regular basis. So I decided I would take a longer break and come back refreshed at the end of the season to deliver more great London Welsh guests for you to listen to. To be honest, I've had some lovely feedback from many people who have found this a great way to keep in touch with the club and to hear from so many great characters who are or who have been involved with Welsh. I do have quite a few guests lined up. If you have any suggestions for future podcast guests, please feel free to get in touch. This week, we hear from a man who was instrumental in ensuring we had the right to play in the Premiership after the RFU denied the club as they said we hadn't met the minimum requirements. Following this, he was chair of the club for four years in what was our most successful period since the 70s. We hear about what he's doing now in retirement and how London Welsh will always be close to his heart. Our guest this week is Blethyn Phillips. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, former London Welsh chairman, Blethyn Phillips. How are you, Blethyn? I'm very well, thank you, Gareth, and yourself, hopefully. I'm very well, thank you. I'll tell you what, I've been trying to schedule this in for quite a while. You're a very busy man. Even though you're retired, I know, you're not really retired. You keep yourself busy. So I know you're involved with Scarlet and Swansea University, but can you tell Alice what exactly you do with those organisations and all the other things that keep you so busy? Uh, well, thanks, Gareth. It's a delight to be here, a real pleasure. And I'm glad the opportunity to uh, speak to yourself and do this podcast, first of all. Um, yes, currently, I mean, I retired as a lawyer at Clifford Chance. It must have been about seven, eight years ago now. But obviously, retiring, I spell it R-E-T-Y-R-I-N-G, retired. Um, and obviously, I'm fairly heavy. I suppose most of my time now. And I feel, in a sense, Gareth, having spent all your life as a lawyer, I feel my wife and I, in our 60s, uh, which we're well into now, I feel it's a bit of a sort of giving back time almost. I mean, you've worked flat out professionally all your career, uh, have enjoyed that hugely, been a real privilege, but you feel in a sense, the 60s is a time to give back, do pro bono work. Uh, Luna Walsh is one example of that, but there are other examples. And the current one, obviously, which takes up most of my time is Swansea University. I've been um, chair of council there uh, since, uh, <laughs> Ironically, December the 13th, 2019, which was just before COVID. And it was a Friday, December the 13th, and just before COVID. Uh, so we had huge challenges there. Uh, but if we've come through that, I think the university is now in as good a place as it can be going forward. It's been incredibly tough. When I have monthly meetings with students, with the trade unions, um, I mean, there are 23,000 students, you know, 4,000 staff and a turnover between 350 and 400 million. So it's a big entity in its own right. But above all of that is looking after the interests of the staff, of the students, and being aware that ultimately you and the governing body of the council is responsible for the well-being and reputation of the university. So as you can imagine, that's quite a big challenge. The joy, of course, is that um, uh, as we had a few weeks ago, you go through graduation ceremonies and we hadn't had any for two and a half years. So I feel for the students who've had to basically take a time out from doing these face-to-face -face graduations for a couple of years. So uh, a few weeks ago, we did the class of 2020, for example, and we graduated about three, three and a half thousand students over 11 congregations. At one of those, actually, we gave George North an honorary degree. So it was very, very gratifying to actually hand George and his wife, Becky, their honorary degrees. So that's a huge 
fun element of it and a real privilege, but it's hard work, as you can imagine, dealing with those responsibilities. So that keeps me very busy. Uh, Scarlet's, we had a board meeting at Scarlet's last week. I've been on the board there for about eight or nine years, a bit longer actually. Uh, and of course, it's been very interesting just in recent times talking about the, the report that suggests reducing the beaches from four to three and how we take forward in financing it so i can't leave rugby in a sense if it's not london Welsh, it's scarlets and those are very interesting board meetings but a very different dynamic obviously with the wru and how we deal with that uh, and that's something of a different podcast entirely probably gareth but that's probably my second most time consuming and then more locally i'm a trustee um, at richmond theater the local theater and at the local museum, Museum of Richmond. And I'm also a warden at St Mary's, the local church as well. Uh, I'm also on the board of Wales in London, because of an umbrella group, which uh, tends to organise the St David's Day bash every year at the Guildhall, yes. and also try to pull together events as well, um, you know, in London for the Welsh diaspora, really. So there we are, sir, so a fairly long-winded, typical Welsh lawyer's summary of what I'm up to at present. Yeah, well, it shows you're busy. So you're in Swansea quite a lot, because. Um, Actually, some of those graduations, some of our players who played for us this year were at the graduation. So people like, you all know them, are Will Ponty, Jack Anderson. These are the, the links we have with Swansea University as a club. Those players went back and, and graduated. So they could have been from the 2020 uh, group, I think. The, indeed so, indeed so. And what was fun was uh, that the varsity, Swansea against Cardiff, just a couple of weeks ago, the first varsity for three years. So I went along and had to MC that event. And because Swansea beat Cardiff, hurrah, <laughs> by 20 points to 13, uh, I had to be reminding me a bit of going onto the pitch to Kassam after we beat the Pirates or after we won the championship as yes. well against Enzance in the second lane of the Kassam and winning the championship trophy back in 2012. So a feeling actually going onto the, this was Liberty Stadium, of course, in Swansea and giving the, the trophy to Swansea University and handing it on the pitch there. And it's a bit like a sort of, cathartic not just cathartic experience but you feel almost um uh you know it's it's yourself being part of it and that gives you a huge buzz well like on the pitch at, uh at the viva stadium a few years ago in scarlet's won the pro 12 as it was in 2017 yes. going on the pitch then in dublin and those are sort of never being a particularly good rugby player myself it's all vicarious that you feel a bit part of it are able to enjoy it with the other lads basically and i think going forward you mentioned the very important links between not just swansea but cardiff and the welsh universities and how that can tie in with london welsh i was at the hammersmith and fulham game a few weeks ago and i was speaking to danny uh, danny griffiths at the end of the yes. game and I said to him, it's really important if we can, Gareth, to try and forge links between, or stronger links even, between London Welsh and Old Deer Park, and uh, both, at both ends of the spectrum, really, both the young people coming through the universities, and just as we did a few years ago with people like Sunny Park or others who are coming towards the end of their careers, and if we can somehow find uh, that spectrum of experience and youthful exuberance, will that be really helpful for the club, particularly as we go up now to the next stage, it's going to get more and more competitive. Oh, it certainly is. And also, we had Ted Wynn Williams at the game and he was handing out loads of business cards to lots of the players from both Swansea and Cardiff about London Welsh. So, if they ever want to come to London, they've got Ted Wynn's card. I, they know well, that. So. And I tell the students that. And I know Ted Wynn said to me, I spoke to Ted Wynn after, Ted said to me, I was there too, Blair. I was there too. <laughs> I know Ted Wynn. If I'd have realised it, I'd have asked you up you know, afterwards for a drink or two. Well, not the Ted Wynn drinks, of course, but the point is, it'd have been good to have caught up with him. But he did say that to me afterwards, which was which is good to hear, you know, Gareth. 
and to, and to do with your Scarlet's involvement, obviously um, the CEO is Simon uh, Mudrak. Yes, and, and yeah, I, I believe he's there's obviously connections with London Welsh there because he lives in London and his son plays for our London Welsh under 11s when he's in London. That's right. Yeah, Simon just lives across the river actually in um, St Margaret's Way, yeah. and I catch up with him from time to time. And uh, yes, you know, we usually meet for a drink, the Roebuck or something. And uh, in fact, um, oh, Michael Hall, the new chair of the PRB which is the professional rugby board in Wales, he lives in East Sheen. Uh, so it's interesting, this <laughs> sort of a Richmond connection, uh, not just to scholars, but with Welsh rugby generally, as you would expect, I guess. I, I love that, it's great. Look, uh, before we chat about your involvement with London Welsh, I'd like to understand a bit about your history with rugby, because, you know, did you start playing a school? Did you go to school in, in South Wales, Blevin? Where, did you, where were you brought up? We only got 45 minutes probably, Gareth, but I was brought up, well, my parents were from Letty, hence the Scarlet's connection, obviously. Yeah. But I was brought up as a young boy in Milford Haven. So I went to Milford Haven Grammar School uh, mm -hmm. initially for the first couple of years and then moved to uh, a typical baptism of fire for a Welsh grammar school boy to then go to England and go to a church direct grant school in Berkshire, you know. And because it was a co-educational school of about 400 pupils, I was a fairly, uh, shall I say it, well built for my age so regardless of what I wanted to play I was shoved in this tight head prop for school <laughs> which was a little baptism by fire because Ranelagh we had in this across the seven years probably only more about 200 250 boys when we played the likes of Maidenhead Grammar or Wellington College had about you know a thousand or twelve hundred chaps so playing in the front row against these guys uh, was character forming shall we say very character forming so that's where I sort of started playing rugby semi-seriously uh, for the first 15 against some of these much much bigger schools in the area and then went to university and played at university uh though one occasion I remember we were playing i forget who we were playing which other university we were playing all i recall is that before kickoff we were kicking the ball in the air and trying to gather it punting what have you and i remember being knocked out by a member of my own team before kickoff Ooh. it was a, it's a lot I, I was then playing flanker i preferred to play at number six so i was playing at number six i went to get the ball but the chap playing second row caught me with his elbow on my chin and the next thing i knew i was flattened around and i had these six faces looking down at me blood on my chin so i was sent to st george's tooting to have about 10 stitches put in my face and I came back after the session we put in just for the end of the game. We won the game with 14 men because you didn't have substitutes in those days back in the mid-70s. And so, yeah, they were so scared that we actually knocked out one of our own guys before the kickoff. They were too afraid to tackle us the rest of the game. And so we won the game. So my university experience was, um, I found about a history of being knocked out by second or fourth. Because after leaving university, uh, I did that for a grad and a postgraduate uh, Career. Where did you go to university, buddy? You didn't say. Where did you go? Did you go you, you're playing in London then. Were you at a university in London? Yeah, I was I was at King's College London. I read law and theology. You could do a sort of joint degree. And I wasn't quite sure because my father was a Baptist minister. I wasn't sure if it was God or mammon that would win the day. <laughs> really, mammon one hand down. So I thought I'd do law. So I then did a proper law. Well, King's a very proper law degree, an excellent university and a very good law degree. But I wanted to research and do a bit more. So I then went to Oxford. I went to St. John's College, Oxford, and I studied there. I did a BCL, another law degree, which I enjoyed hugely. Uh, and then after that, uh, appeared in Oxford, went back to London to study, and indeed then played for, and this is my real mayor, Maxima Culpa, 
at, because I had quite a few friends who were playing at Richmond, I went to play for Richmond for a while rather than Welsh, which I regret. I always felt therefore <laughs> back in 2012 as chair. It was a bit like I'm in full circle, you know, kind of thinking, I've got to make up for my lost days, my misspent youth when I played for Richmond. Those are the days when there was a lot of Welsh connection with Richmond as well, through the days of Quinnell and Ackerman and all the rest of it. So I played there for two or three years. And I'm training one in one Tuesday evening back in 81, I remember vividly. And Chris Ralston used to play lock for England, you remember, he was playing for Richmond. And Ralston and I were not that we were training on a Tuesday evening. And I did a sort of rather foolish tackle. Anyway, I cracked three ribs on the Tuesday evening, just training. Mm-hmm. And I thought then, right, that's it, Blair. You know, you've got a full day's meetings tomorrow. Uh, you can't afford to. And then I sort of, right, put my boots up then in my sort of late 20s thinking, that's it, time to pack up. So those are the end of my rugby playing D days, uh, Gareth, I have to say. Well, look, you know, I think, you know, um, just because just, just you played for Richmond, this is no big issue. You're playing with your friends. You know, that's the main thing. You know, we all look back and think, oh, could you have played for Welsh? But look, you're play, playing with your friends is the most important thing in rugby. Yeah, but and, I'll um, pay for that my next bump into people at Old Year Park. Uh, you, comment, Gareth, I bet possibly, you. Well, as long as you don't turn up in a Richmond shirt and scarf, I think that's I would, the main no, thing. No, I would definitely <laughs> not do that. I got someone on a Welsh shirt and Richmond shirts, that's for sure. Did you ever get a chance of a varsity match when you were at Oxford, or did you play in some of the in the, co- the college rugby? Or it was college you... rugby, yeah. some second fifteen actually, yeah. uh, but was never quite good enough, quite frankly, to be playing for university. I know that I mean lots of like lots of great players went to you know um, Oxford and Cambridge, and they and you know and some of them yeah. didn't get didn't get a cap. So uh, not fair enough. So you've been a, you're, obviously you you were a top barrister, you know, as a as a career and, and QC and and a well travelled well, one. I wasn't I wasn't a top barrister or a QC because in fact I practiced for a couple of years, then decided that, and this is being very honest again, I thought well okay this is very interesting, but I thought I've got thirty or forty years career, where do I want to spend it? So I had a very interesting decision point really uh and i was offered you know i was told very clearly you know stay on the bar if you want to and i didn't think that was for me frankly uh, i wanted to see a bit more of the world uh, and i was offered a job as a top solicitor firms as well but i thought i would actually go and join a commercial enterprise but not as a lawyer so and the management program was bp and that's where i left practice well Let's just say they put me on the management program. So I then was sent my first year after a couple of years was sent to San Francisco, California. So I thought that was the right choice, Blair, to be able to uh, be sent, go west, young man. So I did. So I had a great time in California for three years from 83 to 86. Met my wife, Anne, there in 83. Um, still very what, happy what, there. what was she doing, Blair? Um, what was she uh, doing? She was, well, she was sent there. She had just spent three years in Moscow for a first stint from 79 to 82. And I think if you spend, that was in Brezhnev area. I think she saw three Russian presidents, Brezhnev, Andropov and Shenyanko, I think, in the three or four years there. Very, very, I wouldn't say it was colourful, it was grey and dark, but uh, I think they were sent to recuperate in an easier climate. So <laughs> she was sent to San Francisco and we arrived on exactly the same day, June the 11th, 83. Uh, and so we met there then and... Uh, did you meet on the flight or something? Is that, is that how you know it or not? Did you meet actually when you just by, no. just by chance somewhere, yeah? Well, it wasn't by chance because we had a mutual friend who was working for KPMG in Hong Kong. Ah, okay. And she said, <laughs> oh, look at this guy up and get to San Francisco, uh, which she did. And I, I think my first week there, I got this post at my desk from my secretary saying, please call Anne Pringle at the British consulate. And I thought, I've only been here a week. What have I done wrong already? <laughs> and I thought I would be shipped back home. But that was not the case. And so we um, we met up there and, uh, you know, we sort of basically uh, found that we had a lot of the mutual interests. And 
we both came back then. Well, Anne went to Brussels in the mid eighties and I went back to London and we um, carried on a bit of commuting from Brussels and London. We got married in 87. We bought the place in Richmond in 86, married in 87. And then in 92, Anne was sent to Brussels and I was recruited. I was by then sort of a commercial uh, position in BP, but Total, the French company, offered me a job as a commercial director in Paris. And I thought, well, that's good to have some experience in Paris. And yeah. even though uh, John Brown, who was then CEO, no, he was head of exploration at BP then, or Lord Brown, as he has now said, oh, you know, you must stay in touch and all the rest of it. But I felt the opportunity in 92 was to move to Paris, work for Total, which I did. And then I commuted then from Paris to Brussels and then Paris to London for a while. And then I was sent to Singapore by Total in 1994 for a couple of years to sort of manage their uh, commercial legal operations in East Asia, uh, which was fun. Uh, it was fun because being in Singapore in the early mid 90s was a very different kettle of fish where it is now. And most of the business actually we were doing uh, was in uh, Southeast Asia, a lot of it in Cambodia, Phnom Penh. I remember flying into Phnom Penh in 1992 when uh, the only aircraft there were white UN. It was just after the Khmer Rouge, basically. So you could still hear gunfire. It was quite exciting in that sense. Um, uh, but also realised that the only decent restaurant there was called The Smoking Gun, you know, so that was part of the interest in being in that, at that time in that part of the world. Uh, and then Vietnam was, was, was great fun as well, uh, dealing with the Vietnamese. And then from Singapore, then back to London to John Clifford Chance in the mid-90s. They said you had enough of playing around being being in the commercial world, come back and be a real lawyer. They said, yeah. So, they invited me back in the mid 90s to head up their oil and gas energy practice in London, the mid 80s, the mid 90s. Sorry, uh, which is what I did, and then I was then back in London too. So, I returned uh, to well, I returned to London in the mid 90s, uh, to, to basically lead up on the oil and gas energy practice in Clifford Charles, which was great fun. So, at what stage were you and your wife ever working in the same country? Uh, is that oh, like uh, <laughs> not that infrequently? Let me just think this through because I've got to think about ask that question. Uh, 80, I guess, 86 until 91, and then 90, 96 until 2001. And then Anne was sent to Prague as our ambassador in Prague in 2001, came back in 2004. So again from 2004 to 2008. But then we were both, I mean, I got posted to Moscow as our ambassador in 2008. And fortunately, Cliff, as I was sort of head of the oil and gas practice, and Russia has its oil yes. and gas reserves at that stage, for the first time, we were actually able to manage a joint posting together abroad for the first time after 35 years. And no, 20, yeah, 25 years, sorry, that's so terrible, in 2008. So that's a short answer to your, to your question. Uh, and of course, it's ironic to see what's happening in the Ukraine now, having had three or four uh, very interesting years in Moscow from 2008 to 2012, uh, which was an experience and a privilege. And actually, in many ways, uh, challenging, but remarkably interesting. Obviously, you and your wife were well-traveled, um, and but your wife was made a, a damehood um, because she was a diplomat and her length of service as British ambassador. Was that, you must have been very proud of that. Very proud indeed and well-deserved. Obviously, I'm naturally somewhat biased when I say that. <laughs> uh, yes, she um, she was awarded her damehood in 2009, I think as an award in recognition of all the services she provided for many years, not just in Moscow, obviously. Yeah. So very, very proud of that. Uh, and as I say, um, a great... Uh, 
a great recognition, really, Gareth. Thank you. That's no, great. No, and what um, you know, all the years you've you've been working abroad. What are sort of sort of key highlights for, for you, really, of, you know, when you've been sort of uh, you know uh, traveling around the globe and, and working in some amazing countries. A uh, number of highlights. Uh, a number of highlights. I mean, a lot of privileges to remember, for example, financing the first um, power station, private power station in Egypt back in the late nineties, uh, with, with the Egyptian government negotiating that, and that was the first. Uh, a private finance, project finance power station in Egypt. Uh, and of course that just means getting, it's a win-win for everybody, the government, the people, because you built schools, you have the infrastructure to help that, uh, win-win for everybody. Same thing in Brazil back in the early 2000s, first project financed um, gas distribution pipeline in Brazil, for example. Uh, Peru in Lima negotiated. Frustrating actually all of these, a bit like Hanoi back in the mid nineties, you go to Rio probably 10 or a dozen times, you go to Lima 10 or a dozen times, you negotiate these deals, you never once have the opportunity to go up and see, you know, Machu Picchu in Peru, you never once get the opportunity to go and see the Statue of Christ Redeemer in Rio, you never once get to Harlong Bay in Hanoi, partly because you'd feel a slight guilt in doing that because you're there doing business, of course. Uh, but also because you want to actually preserve the ability to do that um, at some future point in time when you're purely chilled out and relaxing, enjoying holiday, which you can't do if you're there on business, you understand that professionally it just doesn't work. So a number of highlights over the course of, of many years, some fun points as well. Um, not all of which are suitable for a podcast, I have to say, Gareth, but perhaps <laughs> over a beer at Old Deer Park at some point, uh, it would be more fun. But there we are. So yeah, lots of highlights, lots of fun. Okay, so so what stage did you get involved with London Welsh then? And, and who, who asked you? Because uh, were you a supporter first? Because you, obviously you're a local resident. Yeah, you, you know, was... I've been a patron at London Welsh for a number of years. You know, Ron Holly first suggested it. And so going back to the 90s and before I'd been a patron at London Welsh uh, for quite some years, playing the catalyst was uh, when we were in Moscow, actually, uh, because I had become more seriously involved in 2000 and... 10, 2011, I went back to um, an England Wales rugby game at which Kelvin was present. We got talking because of a mutual friend. And because of that, uh, and I was always keen during our term in Moscow to actually host St. David's Day events. You had you know, St. Andrew's Day, you had St. Patrick's Day, but there was no St. David's Day really. So I wanted to initiate that. And the first one we had was in 2009, it got bigger each year. So by 2011, I was able to, um, uh, and of course, the residence we have, and I was very gracious and offered the residence to host a, it was a perfectly legitimate reason, St. David's Day in 2011. And so it's right opposite the Kremlin, the residence, uh, if you know where that is. And so we flew the Welsh flag and the Union Jack, just on top of it, of course, uh, opposite the Kremlin in 2011. We must have had about 150, 200 residents for this St. David's Day function. And so I invited Kelvin and Pat and Steve Lewis, uh, and John Taylor, of course, quite a few of the call and watch people across to Moscow for that event, along with other friends and fairly well-known Welsh people as well. I mean, David Wigley's wife, Eleanor Bennett, came to the harp, for example. Big, big fun occasion. And I remember one of the events, well, two events stick in my mind, particularly apart from the actual reception of the residence, uh, but John Taylor and I, and Steve Lewis, and Kel went to a reception at the Slava Rugby Club, which is the Moscow Rugby Club, basically. And so got their tie downstairs. 
And he went to Slava Rugby Club. And this was in March, on March the 1st, I forget, in yes. Moscow. Snow was about a foot deep. So you couldn't see the rugby pitch. They only played for a short period in the summer. So you couldn't see the rugby pitch. But they showed us around, gave us lunch. There must have been about, about 10 or 12 of us from London Welsh and colleagues and friends, about 20 or 30 from Slava Rugby Club. And he went downstairs to their club room and they had clips, believe it or not, of the Welsh, uh, they did a Welsh tour in the 1970s. So they had clips of Steve Lewis playing for Emu Vale back in the mid 70s on the war with Steve Lewis was staggered by, you know, couldn't believe this. <laughs> they regaled us with stories. I, mean, I remember that John Taylor and I probably had about seven vodkas, but we actually sat down for <laughs> in true Russian fashion. But I had to behave myself, I was probably on duty as well. But it was a great day. But they said to us, uh, when they were in, uh, in mid 70s still obviously communist and they said they did a tour of wales and they visited and played three or four teams in south wales including Canhedra colliery and a few other things tumble i think which ken thomas Preston would have been pleased about but they sent obviously in the mid 70s the kgb sent about 30 or 40 minders to keep an eye on their local team who was playing in south wales and of course the local south wales police thought this was great fun took care of them and so the south wales police entertained the kgb this is a reliable story from slava rugby club so that the slava rugby club team members themselves could enjoy their time with the welsh teams they were playing and so because of that they all came back safely and, and strongly and that i suppose goes back to the roots particularly between russia and wales because if you go back to the 1930s and it's actually very ironic very tragic now that the donets basin in the donbass region in ukraine and because the huge coal reserves there was originally funded by a Welshman, as many people will realise. It was actually it was called Hughesville at one time. Uh, and that is, a, that is at the heart of the current dispute, not that Wales at the heart of the dispute, but the, the industry and the mining heritage, which was set up uh, almost a century ago, was very much due to uh, a Welshman who, who bought the experience of the coal mining industry to uh, uh, Russia, the USSR. Uh, and so it was that uh, Moscow University, for example, MGU, Moscow State University, actually has a Welsh department and they would offer scholarships to Welsh people to come across the 1930s uh, from the mining communities in South Wales to Moscow to study at university, which they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. Uh, and of course, there was political uh, rationale behind that as well. But suffice it to say that um, JT and Kelvin and myself and others and Eleanor Bennett went to Moscow State University just after St. David's Day to meet with the Welsh department. And we were actually singing Welsh human tunes and hymn live in Hadai in Welsh with Russian students, for many of whom uh, Welsh was their second language ahead of English. It's the way they run the system there. Wow. And the Russians used to say to me, ah, oh, Bledin, we are very sorry for us, uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, English, it's very much a second language. It's okay, it's my second language too. I said English, so don't worry about it. Yeah. But your Welsh is very good. So it was doing that visit, basically, it's a long way of coming around to the point, Gareth, to answer your question. Uh, so my apologies for going on, but it was doing that visit that Kelvin said, look, when you come back at the end of the year from Moscow, would you be interested in joining the board? I wasn't actually chairman then. Well, I'd join the board, we could do with some fresh face to all that shit. So I did. So at the end of 2011, early 2012, uh, I joined the board January 2012, but unbeknownst to me, Kelsen <laughs> clearly had it in mind saying, well, when you take over as chair as well, and nobody else was, uh, pick my words very carefully here, nobody else felt in a position that they would be able to take over the reins from Kelvin, nor did I, frankly. Uh, but I didn't want to let Kelvin down either. So I went along to that first board meeting in January. I remember JT was there. JT said, come on, up you come. Um, so, 
that was it. That was the background. And the very first meeting we had, which I chaired back in January 2012, with a decision, because you recall at that time, the RFU said, if you want to go for Premiership Rugby, you have to satisfy minimum standards criteria, the MSC yes. it was called. And that meant, of course, having the facility to be able to do that. We didn't have that old park, as we all knew. The first board meeting was a fairly important decision. Do we want to fill in this form and apply and try and satisfy the criteria for going up to Premiership? Should we succeed? If you recall, at that time in 2012, we were lying about eighth or ninth in the championship. We were not doing as well as you might have done. Yeah. Lynn Jones, of course, was still the coach. And I felt at that time, uh, should we try for it or not? JT was very keen. So was Kelvin. Some board members were perhaps less convinced of the wisdom of that. Uh, but I felt a bit like, remember what Lord Tennyson, Tennyson the poet, uh, said, uh, better to have loved than lost than never to have loved before. I think he also said, it is better to have tried and perhaps not succeeded than not to have tried at all. And I felt that. I felt, I said to the board and to JT as well, and Kelvin, well, the point is, if we get to May, let's say, and we happen, when it was against the odds of that time, if we happen to win the championship, could we all as a board look at the players in the team at that time and say, well, well done, boys, we won the championship, but we can't go up because we haven't satisfied these various criteria. And I, for one, didn't want to look at the likes of people like John Mills or Mike Denby or, you know, all the guys that were on, yeah. or Matt Corker, mm -hmm. guys like Matt, or I was going to be, I would have felt very uncomfortable as chair and as a board saying, I'm very sorry, well done, lads, but we can't go up. So anyway, John Taylor and I started, okay, what can we do to satisfy that criteria? We know that meant they're getting a different grant. So John and I, John Taylor and I went and looked at Brentford, you know, Crystal Palace, which are all the options, basically. Even looked at Quinn's Stoop. And, and Quinn's missing David Morgan, who was then the chair of Queen's, very generously, uh, whose father, of course, or father-in-law had been chair of London Welsh back in the 80s, Ernie. And David Morgan said, yeah, we can give you our grant. It will cost you £50,000 a game to rent it. And I thought, well, that's not going to be particularly wise or prudent. So we looked around and ended up at the Kassam because I knew that at that particular point in time, as you recall, uh, Wasp's ground sharing at High Wycombe, Saracens were ground sharing with football, London Irish were ground sharing yeah. with Reading. There was a precedent there where if you shared grounds with football staff, they couldn't deny you the uh, credibility. And I thought on competition law grounds, they're bound to lose this. So Keller and I and the board thought, okay, let's go for Oxford. One, it wasn't a million miles away, there was a lot more difficult to get to clearly. It had the facilities. And there's quite a large Welsh community in the Oxfordshire area. So that's why we plumped on that. Uh, so we had a good look at that. And of course, as we know, uh, we did get through. I'm looking at looking at the programme, actually, the infamous runoff. And I've got here, I'm, sh I'm showing you now on, the, on this screen, Gareth. Um, we ended up fourth at the end of that year, as everybody will know. Yes. And we went to semi-finals and we beat Bedford 13-3. And we, <laughs> let's get it, we, we lost to Bedford 24-17. So we won 30-27. I remember very clearly if Bedford had gone... You know, why they went for the penalty rather than, you know, kick for the try or something at the very end that I have no idea, otherwise they'd have won it. But we squeaked by that. Then, of course, we beat the Pirates in the final. I forget, going on the train down to Penzance for that final against the Pirates, uh, which we won 37-21. Uh, I was on the train, and I'm getting an email from Ian Ritchie, who was then the CEO of the RFU, as the train was pulling out of Exeter Station on the way to Penzance. Email saying the RFU board has met this morning, and regardless of how the Welsh do, they don't meet the MSC criteria, so you won't get promoted in any event, regardless yeah. of the outcome of the final. We all remember that very clearly. So I got to Penzance, went to the change room to meet with the boys, Matt, 
John, everybody else, and Lynn Jones and said, here's the news. And I think partly that fired them up, Gareth, to perform as well as they did. And so we came away with that 37, 21, and we knew then basically it would take a lot to stop us at the Sam on the return leg. And of course they didn't, and we won that. And so up we went basically. Um, well, we we didn't go up. We got we were we won the we won the right for promotion, but obviously the RFU denied us the right for promotion. And then so subsequently, yeah, I knew at that I knew at that point I'd better cast out in case legally. I knew if we could win on the pitch, I take care of the stuff. Off which, the pitch. Is, which is great, and that's what you did, right? So just take us through, um, just elaborate a bit more on that bledding. So your, your involvement in the appeal, really, with the RFU. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, basically, Gareth, on the appeal. Uh, they gave the opinion, we lodged the appeal, uh, went to the arbitral course. Uh, I went to Tom de la Mer, who's now leading competition law. So he looked at it and thought, you've got a very good case here. I mean, how could the RFU not? But the RFU, of course, fought it, uh, as did Newcastle, because Newcastle would have gone down, so they fought it as well. Uh, we had the arbitration panel of three people. It was headed by uh, James Diggermans, who's now a High Court judge. Uh, and... James led the panel of three and they were pretty well unanimous in their view when they heard the legal arguments, competitional arguments, basically the RFU, Newcastle didn't have a leg to stand on. Uh, and it was purely, and I remember going through the judgment afterwards and when James Dingman handed that down, it was pretty clear. I remember getting emails from Stephen Jones, the Times, and even from Dean Ryan. Uh, Dean Ryan. Dean yeah. Richards? Dean Richards, thank you, Dean Ryan. I've, I've got Newport Gwent Dragon in my mind at the moment. Oh, no, yeah, Dean, Dean, not Dean Ryan, not Newport Gwent Dragons, no. Dean Richards, thank you, Gareth. Um, texting his congratulations, so good for, for Dean Richards doing that. And there was a reluctancy. You could sense that amongst the RFU. Damn, you know, tough. That was clear. That was very um, very emotional rollercoaster. I remember, the, I remember getting the text message through in a board meeting at Old Deer Park the Friday afternoon that the result came through, as it were. I remember that sense of, whew, we, we made it, we've done, we won that battle as well. Though I do recall Steve Lewis shouting down at Penzance when we were told about the RFU decision. Steve Lewis shouting down from the stadium, we've beaten you once, we've beaten you twice, and we'll beat you off the pitch as well, he said <laughs> to the RFU chairman at the time, uh, which I did smile at. No, that's when the, look, that's when the real hard work started, wasn't it? After we've, you know, we then we got a late notice to get into the Premiership, and the season would start two months later, and we were behind everyone else, really. But how much did you enjoy being a chair in that first Premiership season uh, with Lynn Jones as the coach? I enjoy. I mean, I mean, enjoy is the right word to use, I think, because I look at. Uh, I've got the program here. Actually, the very first Premiership game we played against Leicester Tigers on September second, twenty twelve. I'm looking at the team members here, huge pride, looking down at people like Gordon Ross, Jonathan Mills, Dan George, James Lewis, you can name all Hudson, Joe Adua, all these names that we're familiar with, which is a great team. And I look back at the results of that year, and I realise, looking back, we won five games, which surprised everybody, you know, we beat Exeter, 25-24. Yeah. Uh, we beat Sale Sharks away. Uh, we were very close, we lost to Saracens, 23-28. Uh, we lost to Gloucester at 25-31. Wasps lost by 10 points. Uh, lost to Worcester Warriors. We beat Bath 69. I remember that game very clearly. Lost by only a few points to Northampton. Uh, it was a very close game. And of course, um, we lost to Gloucester by one point. It's here in Gordon Ross. Unfortunately, there was kicking boots on that day. We'd have beaten them. But a lot of 
what ifs, and of course we beat Worcester in the last game. And of course we had five points deducted because the famous Tyson Keats affair, yes, which everyone will remember. Uh, so when you say that I enjoy, I'm not sure that enjoy is exactly the word I would use. Uh, it was exciting. It was a real privilege. Uh, I thought we should and could have stayed up. Uh, at the end of the day, if we hadn't had those five points deducted, it was just a matter of five or six pointing us to sale. And had either of those games yes. that I mentioned to you gone the other way, we would have stayed up. It would have been a different story. Sadly, not to be. Uh, but it's a huge privilege, and it was a great success in many ways. Uh, it, was a, course, it was a brilliant season. Check it out. It was a brilliant season, you know, for um, for lots of the supporters that you know they really enjoyed it, and it was it was close. But look, as chair of the club, what did you see your primary purpose at the time? You know, during that season, I think, to my mind, Gareth, it's a very good question. Primary, see, the primary purpose was to make us all proud of the club, uh, make London Welsh feel proud of its club, of its heritage, and to be worthy successors in a sense in the long line of great teams of the past. Yeah. And I felt in that first season, we did the club and its history proud by doing as well as he did against all the odds, as you said, going up late, having a funding which was a fraction of the rest of the PRL clubs. I mean, our funding was probably about a third, well less than a half of the other clubs. And to compete on what was not a level playing field, frankly, and to achieve what we did was a great tribute, I think, to the coaching team, uh, to the off-pitch people as well, you know, physios, coach people like Chris Jenkins and others, a huge measure of success. And so uh, it was a huge testament to the character of the club in many ways and to the history of the club. That's what I felt most proud of. The funniest thing I felt though in that year was, you know, that was the year in 2013 when Wales beat England 30 points to three at Cardiff. It was, yeah. Remember that game when if England won, they would get this grand slam, a bit like 99. If England won, they'd get the grand slam, so too in 2013. But if Wales won by eight points or more, we were in the championship and points difference. And of course, we won 30 points, which I think is still the highest margin of victory over England. And this so happens every quarter, there'd be a PRL and an RFU. So Premiership Rugby and RFU would have a quarterly meeting. And this particular time of year, it was a quarterly meeting, was the Tuesday after that Saturday game at Cardiff. <laughs> and I remember going into the RFU boardroom at Twickenham, and Bill Bowman was then the chair. And I happened to be sitting opposite Bill at that point in time. And I had Rob Andrew on my left. Now, the old England centre John Spencer, my right-hand side, so I was squeezed between John Spencer and Rob Andrew and Bill Bowman opposite me and the other 11 Premiership chairmen. Bill Bowman addressing, well, gentlemen, he said in his Lancashire brogue, here we are gathered today in a very solemn manner out of that drubbing by Wales at the weekend, he said, except, he said, for one smiling Welshman sitting opposite me. <laughs> and that, for me, was in many ways the highlight of the year. Um, that and the fact, interesting enough, Gareth, and I won't mention names, but let's just say uh, relationships between, it might be quite different now, but certainly back in 2013, 14, 15, you know, relationships amongst the, the PRL chairs were, were not at their happiest. They didn't all get on like house and fire, he said, putting it mildly. Mm -hmm. And on one particular occasion, one chairman who shall remain nameless, I might tell you in a beer afterwards, Gareth, one chairman who shall remain nameless, um, went off in a huge stop because of a huge bust up with another PRL chairman and uh, forgot his iPhone and left his iPhone. This was in one of the meeting rooms at Heathrow Airport where we often used to have the, the PRL meetings, left his iPhone and asked a third party in these exact terms. A text him and said, look, I've left my iPhone in the room. I'm on my way back to 
wherever he was going back to. The only person I trust in that room is Glenn and Phillips at London Welsh. Could you make sure that he gets my iPhone, gives it back to me at some point in time, <laughs> which just shows you that we might have been the uninvited guest, but at least people trusted us to do the decent thing, actually. So a number of interesting anecdotes in the course of that year. But the main was, as I say, was uh, proving the legacy and making the club remember and being proud of its name and its heritage, Gareth, I think. And that's, that's what we good. did. That's good, and you did do that definitely. I think it was it was a, a proud moment for lots of us, you know, during the during your tenure as chair. But look, you know, um, you know, I met Justin Burnell yesterday, and because I was refereeing a, a rugby match, and he was coaching up from Pontypridd District School. But look, under your um, stewardship, shall we say, you had some great characters as coaches, didn't you? With Lynn Jones, Justin Burnell, Roland Phillips, you're really great coaches, but great men. You know, more importantly, you must have enjoyed your time, you know, working with them. Hugely, um, hugely. I mean, uh, they would always just say characters larger than life figures in more yeah. ways than one. Uh, and I wouldn't want to bump into any of them on a cold night uh, in the dark alleyway, anywhere in the world, um, especially in Mindy, maybe. But there we are. <laughs> uh, but there are certain parts of the world that I would always welcome meeting them. And I still stay in touch with Lynn. Uh, Justin sent me a text a few weeks ago. Um, so, you know, you, you stay in touch with these people. You don't, like any good family, you don't lose touch with people. You stay in touch and you wish them all the best. Uh, but what a huge amount, I mean, Justin had a very different style from Lynn and Roland, a different style again from Justin. I think, though, by the time we went up the second, I mean, of course, I remember during the championship year in 2013 14, in between the two premiership seasons, I remember some people saying they won the championship again against Bristol. Yeah. Uh, Remember Chris Bowie at Bristol being <laughs> really because they thought they won it, basically, when they scored that first try at the Kassam and the first leg of the final. Mm -hmm. And then we thumped them, basically, and then won done in Bristol again in driving rain and dreadful conditions. We won again. Uh, and I remember that, uh, you know, that was also very well-deserved and tough. But I guess the point is, at that stage, it was a lot tougher. I mean, it was two years on from the, you know, a couple of seasons on, mm -hmm. uh, salaries had rocketed again it was a much more difficult field in many ways upon which to engage it had been a couple of years ago i think uh, and that was tough going i do recall the championship here somebody saying to me you haven't only got the best front row in the championship you've got the second best front row in the championship as well such was the strength of the team at that stage so we deservedly uh, you know went up uh, for a second time uh, but the second season, the Premiership was a much tougher gig, obviously, didn't win a game. And that was tough. And I think it began to take its toll. And the disparity in funding really yeah. began to make itself felt, I think, then, Gareth. So you talk about funding. So it was a lot of your time um, when you were at the club. You must have been like, looking for new investors, you know, to, to stabilise the club going forward. And we also knew that Kelby wanted to step down to, to look after his, his, uh, his wife. So now that dust has settled, can you give your account of how close we came to um, uh, to get new investors? And there's a lot of speculation around this Californian investment trust or um, investors who are trying to get on board and how this club was uh, taken in by this chap called Trevor. But I know, I know there's other people involved, but we just saw this Trevor at the bar and at our games and things. What, what's, yeah, what's your no, viewpoint well, on that, Blair? Thanks, thanks, thanks for asking the question, Gary. I mean, there is quite a story behind it, as you can imagine. The reality was, um, come the end of the second premiership season, which was at the end of 2014, so you know, going into the 15-16 season, really, back in the premiership, back in the championship, the 15-16 season, the reality was that um, Kelvin 
and the club owes, as we all know, a huge amount of debt to Kelvin. Uh, almost single-handedly funded the club over a number of years. Yes. And there comes a point in time where you can't just sustain that inevitably. Uh, there were one or two other people who invested hugely uh, in the club as well as benefactors, I would hasten to add. Mm-hmm. But you can't rely on just one, let alone two or three people to carry that. And so we felt clearly, as in all the board, the need to ensure that there was um, an additional revenue stream coming from somewhere. And all the board were charged with finding you know, alternative sources of income. And believe me, boy, we tried hard, but with no success, we tapped into all the networks we could. We looked around the Welsh diaspora in London and elsewhere and internationally. We hosted a number of events uh, at which, you know, we would hope, you know, you remember very clearly uh, Rugby World Cup in 2015 when we hosted an Old Year Park, a huge event with the Welsh squad, Moran Gatlin and Rob Bright, and I remember it very clearly huge event, uh, which we all enjoyed. And that was a huge pinnacle shortly after we'd you know, gone back down the second time. Uh, and so we really worked very hard, but of course without success. And the only nibble we got, as it were, uh, was from uh, Phoenix, this company, Phoenix. Uh, and the reality there was, had it been just Trevor Owen Shaw, I'd have been very wary, naturally. But the reality was that it was a Californian, uh, a very, frankly, uh, a well-recognized Beverly Hills, Californian law firm, Freund and Brackey, uh, which had a number of, and you can go on their website, they still exist, I checked it this morning, actually, they're still there, Freund and Brackey, Jonathan Freund was the founding partner, uh, emailed, texted me, assured me that you know, they were the owners of Phoenix and they were 100% behind this. In fact, even after I stepped down towards the end of 2016, they were sending messages to Gareth Hawkins, who took over as chair, saying yeah. funds will come in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so it was on the basis of Freund and Brackey and a well-known, respected Beverly Hills law firm with a number of very well-established clients that owned Phoenix and on the basis of that representation, backed up by emails and correspondence or what have you, it was on that basis that we felt this is a uh, very uh, credible entity with whom we can enter into. Okay, Trevor was their mouthpiece, but that wasn't the legal entity that owned Phoenix. Yeah. It was Fraud and Fraud and Brackey. I'm not sure that many people perhaps fully understand or appreciate that, uh, because I was conscious, you know, Gareth, going into 2016, uh, that as a club, if we could not find alternative funding as directors, and it's not just myself and Kelvin, but all the rest of the London Welsh Board, as directors, we had an obligation to the club under the Insolvency Act to make sure that we were operating as a solvent entity. And as long as you had secured a legally binding agreement for good funding, and it was for four million pounds at the end of the day, then you could legitimately bona fide say, we are trading honestly as an entity with a legally binding agreement. And the interesting thing was when the club did finally go into liquidation after I stepped down back in December, 2016, the um, liquidators, Menzies, uh, basically gave us a clean shit in the sense that, well, look, you did all you could with a legally binding SPA, with a reputable company, the directors discharged their duties on the Insolvency Act. You legitimately could say that you were acting not in an insolvent situation because of the legal framework you'd had built up with Freund and Brackey. Uh, and that's why, in fact, <laughs> on that point, if I can delve into that slightly, as far as I'm aware, with correspondence just two or three months ago, uh, Menzies have, uh, in effect, uh, novated their rights under the agreement to a third party entity which is still pursuing Trevor and as far as I'm, cons- I'm aware of Father Brackey possibly under the terms of the SPA because Trevor also gave a personal guarantee to the club 
which must be worth a number of a seriously high six-figure sum by now, yeah. and that is still being pursued. That is probably, I, I won't say more than that at the present time, other than to assure people if that's the right word to use, that the matter is far from dead and that there are uh, still avenues being pursued to try and follow up on any potential claims against both Trevor and others as well. So the story is not dead yet, but we await the final chapter on that, frankly, Gareth. Well, that's fair enough. Look, it's very clear um, all the directors tried very hard to get new investors on board. It, it didn't materialise. Is that the why? Is that the reason you, you felt you had to step down as chair, Bledin, or exactly. were there other that reasons? That was it. No, that was the reason why I felt, you know, you had the agreement. I mean, I was concerned to get the agreement signed up. Legally binding agreement. I knew that protected the club above all else. Especially the club, actually, all yes. the directors. The club was protected. Press was protected. I had that. Even though I have to say this, perhaps uh, not. There was not unanimity at the board, shall we say, for pursuing this. But I felt, as a lawyer, it was very important to do that. Otherwise, we would have been, uh, frankly, uh, seriously compromised, both the club and ourselves as a board. So we had to do that. Once that had been secured, uh, that was, to my mind. Um, security for the club and for the board and I felt I had done my bit there as well off the pitch as it were as well as the yeah. previous three or four years as chair but when the money didn't materialize in November of 2016 I felt the only thing I could reasonably do there was to step down as chair basically I thought that was the right course of action I didn't want to but I felt I really had to do that I didn't have a choice basically Gareth much as it was against my grain and I didn't want to quit all the rest of it but I felt I had to at that point so I stepped down Gareth took over pro 10 and we formed the 1885 club and you know, we, we progress. Look, and, uh, I really appreciate you explaining that because not, not everyone would have heard your your uh, viewpoints at the time, uh, things like that. So it's really nice for you to have the opportunity to tell people you know, the, your reason you did. But look, you know, that's that's history and we're a different place now as a, as a club. Um, you've been back to watch some of the games. Are you, are you enjoying how the club responded to the challenges we've faced? You know, four I promotions think, in four years. I think it's terrific, actually. It's a huge credit to the club. As I was saying, at the last time I saw there was in a few weeks ago, Hammersmith, which we won. And it's been terrific to follow the progress. I've not been by any means to every game which I would have liked to have done because of my other commitments elsewhere. But I've followed it very closely. Uh, and I think it's terrific uh, in a number of ways. Two main ways, I think, guys. One is on the pitch success. I think, we, as I said earlier on, we need to build on that. Speaking to Terry, you know, he was very clear about the fact we need to get some more players and build that relationship. Um, both east and west of Offers Dyke. But more importantly, I think, so I was talking to Danny after the game as well, and I think the governance, the structure, I think sometimes uh, when you're so emotively involved in the game, you could forget sometimes the importance of good governance, good structure. And I was very pleased and encouraged and heartened to read the latest bit of news about the new corporate structure of London Welsh Rugby Club. The fact that you have these committees, you've got the people focus, the supporters, you've got the audit. It's, a, it's to my mind, now, had the opportunity to sit back and put in place a good government, I'm used to that, Swansea philosophy is, believe me, but have in mind, have in place a good governance structure to ensure that the club is looked after off the pitch in terms of its management, responsibilities, etc., as well as on the pitch. So I think the club is in a very good place, both in terms of its playing potential and also in terms of how it can back that up uh, in the boardroom, really. And I think that's a huge credit to what you and others have done uh, to get us there. So uh, I'm very encouraged by that. And I look forward to following the club closely over the coming years as it continues its upwards trajectory. Ah, and good stuff. I'll do all I can, you know, with 
whatever experience I have, I'm very perfectly happy, as I mentioned to Danny, to uh, help in whatever way I can going forward, because it's very much a part of me, it's very much the club, and it's a great to see it going forward, Gareth. Look, you know, and you'll always be a part of London Welsh. You know, you're a massive part of our history, you know, 11 to 2016 as chair. But look, when you look back at your time, Bledin, what, what are your fond memories of London Welsh? And, and obviously, of the people and characters we had around the club? Well, I think that's, that's uh, absolutely spot on, Gareth. I mean, huge memories, fond memories. I think of the people, at the end of the day, it's the people that you meet, guys that you deal with, that leave their lasting memories with you. Uh, Everyone, I mean, you have to start with Kelvin because Kelvin is very much the club and has been history of the club for so long now. I think JT, when John Taylor was, you know, CEO and managing it, and it was thanks to JT and Kelvin that came on board. Uh, many might blame them for that. I don't know. But anyway, it was <laughs> JT and Kelvin who were at the front of the row. And actually a huge debt of thanks to, to obviously to Pat as well, we miss dearly, uh, who's passed away. Uh, very sadly, uh, but Kelvin and Pat and JT and indeed all the directors who were very supportive and who uh, stood by through thick and thin, I wouldn't name them all because it would embarrass them, but we know who those directors were and their help and support. You think of all the teams, you look at those team lists, I mentioned Matt and Seb, Jewel and, you know, the Lewis brothers, there's a whole range of names there that you can look at and say, yep, they were tremendous assets. Uh, people have gone on to play for premiership clubs, actually, as well as championship clubs. So the coaching team mentioned about Lynn and Justin and Roll, but also Kingsley, James Buckland, all the coaching staff, as well as all the team members. And um, you know, not forgetting Fisher, I mean, Chris Jenkins, Lucinda Deeks, people like Pete Lowe, carrying the bags, tearing himself. And I think it's that whole uh, people in the office, like Katie Bigos, Michael Davis, Michael Harnity. I mean, there's a whole raft of people that you met with and engaged in almost on a daily basis. And that's what brings you, uh, that's what keeps you going. Those are the memories that you have, the people you come in touch with. Uh, so above all, you know, not above all, but absolutely up there at the top with all the supporters, frankly. Uh, people like yourself, Gary, people like Gwyn Williams, people like Danny, people like dear old Chappers, for example, Martin <laughs> John, people whom we all know and love dearly uh, without whom we wouldn't be there people like Colin Bosley you know people who are still there and support and do their things people who are sadly longer with us like Ken Thomas who was chair back in the 80s who's passed away these are the names these are the people whom you think about with huge fondness and why you'll always be part of the club because of the heritage of the distant past but actually the not so distant past Easter either and many of them are still with us and so that's what makes me feel so proud and makes such a privilege and an honour, frankly, Gareth, to have been a chair of the club and to remain associated with the club because of what the club stands for and because of the people who stand for the club. And Bledin, look, long may your association with London Welsh continue. Look, thank you very much for your time tonight. Uh, it's been brilliant catching up with you. Stay in touch with everyone at London Welsh. You know where we are. Come and watch our games. Come have a glass of wine with us. Come and sing a song. And hopefully we'll see you, you know, um, early part of next season at one of our matches. As I do, and for so interesting singing a song, I forgot to almost, and Joe Jones would never forgive me. I didn't mention <laughs> Joe Jones, the London Welsh Rugby Bell Voice Choir. Saying singing a song reminded me Joe would never forgive me if I hadn't actually mentioned the London Welsh Rugby Bell Voice Choir at the end of it. Uh, <laughs> And well done, and God bless to everybody, Gareth. Dioch. Dioch, 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 D